that we have to say every Easter, where I proclaim, He is risen, and you get to respond, He is risen indeed. So we're only gonna do this one time, but on camera, wherever you are, hopefully in your pajamas, comfortable, relaxed, I'm going to say, He is risen, you respond, He is risen indeed. So here we go. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, it is wonderful to be with you on Easter Sunday. And what an amazing chance to gather together, even though we're online as a church, and reflect on who Jesus is and what this day means. Pastor Stephen has asked that I use this Sunday, Easter Sunday, to launch a brand new series that we're gonna be calling Resurrection Encounters for the next three Sundays. So there's three stories, three encounters in the Gospel of John, and each one of these encounters holds a lot of significance. There's a lot of intimacy, there's a lot of insight into who Jesus is, who the people are that he's interacting with, but I especially think these resurrection encounters have something to teach us in light of us coming hopefully near the end of this lockdown, in light of us entering this new life of spring and summer as we're going into a new season, in light of us as a church looking to gather together again, what does it mean to encounter the resurrected Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at. This morning, we're going to start with the first resurrection encounter, the very first person that Jesus sees after he is resurrected from the dead. This story is going to come from the Gospel of John in chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 20. I'm going to read us our first verse. This is verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Okay, so this is a somewhat interesting beginning to the resurrection and it actually highlights a question I think is really, really important. Perhaps you've asked this question yourself, perhaps you've had friends ask this question of you, or perhaps you're even wrestling with this question. You're trying to figure it out and the question is simply this, did Jesus rise from the dead? Every Easter we have to pause and ask this question, was the tomb actually empty? Or, as Mary fears here, was this all just some grand conspiracy or misunderstanding or mistake? If you go into your bookstore, there are a lot of very impressive, very expensive academic tomes of various scholars who are very respected, who all argue something along the same point, that Jesus was simply a powerful moral teacher, a prophet in his day, that he was a really good man, that there's lots of good things to learn from him, but that ultimately this whole belief in Christianity that Jesus rose from the dead was a big misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And instead, we need to just accept that Jesus offered us really nice teachings that we all should follow, but nothing more. I think this is actually a really helpful Sunday to just pause and consider, do we believe that Jesus was simply a good teacher, or do we believe that he actually was God? and rose from the dead. Uh, one scholar, N.T. Wright, points out that people in Jesus' day 
we're no more likely to believe that someone could just rise from the dead than people today. I mean, this is not a common occurrence. This isn't something that you just accept on a whim. This isn't something that makes sense. This is a supernatural moment that shifts all of human history. And so we have to ask, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, where I think it's helpful to start is that whether you think Jesus was just a good moral teacher or the risen Lord, everyone agrees that Jesus did live and was crucified. So I just grabbed three scholars, very respected scholars, uh, who all give us quotes on the fact that they do believe, even though they aren't Christians themselves, they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they do believe that Jesus lived and taught what he taught and then was crucified. So this is Marcus Borg, who is a professor at Oregon State University, one of the leading Jesus scholars in the United States. He says, some judgments are so probable as to be certain. For example, Jesus really existed and he really was crucified, just as Julius Caesar really existed and was assassinated. We can, in fact, know as much about Jesus as we can about any figure in the ancient world. So this is Marcus Borg saying, listen, we know Jesus lived. Here's another scholar, E.P. Sanders, who teaches at Oxford and Duke. He's another leading scholar on Jesus. He would say, historical reconstruction is never absolutely certain. And in the case of Jesus, it is sometimes highly uncertain. Despite this, we have a good idea of the main lines of his ministry and his message. We know who he was, what he did, what he taught, and why he died. The dominant view among scholars today seems to be that we can know pretty well what Jesus was out to accomplish. And we can know a lot about what he said. And those two things make sense within the world of first century Judaism. Okay, so the only reason I'm working through all this is just to point out We do know Jesus lived. We do know that Jesus taught. And in fact, these leading scholars, Oxford, out at Oregon State, both would suggest we're pretty certain we know what Jesus was teaching. And we're pretty certain we know that he was, in fact, crucified. Now, here's one more. One of the leading skeptics, you've probably heard his name if you've ever talked to anyone who really wrestles with the historical questions of Christianity. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's a leading skeptic in the field of studies of Jesus. Bart Ehrman himself will admit, I don't think there's any serious historian who doubts the existence of Jesus. We have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from this time period. So if we have all this evidence for Jesus, and if we're really certain that he did exist and we know what he taught, then what do we make of the claim from his followers that he rose from the dead? There's really two contested pieces of evidence if you get into the arguments and debate. And again, hopefully this is a question that you've had a chance to wrestle with, or maybe you're in the middle of wrestling with yourself. If I were to try to summarize it, the two questions are first, Were there witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, or did they just make it up or have a hallucination? And second, where was the body of Jesus if he wasn't resurrected from the dead? Okay, so let's see what the first question. Were there witnesses? If you've ever heard the skeptics, the typical argument goes that if Jesus was a really good moral religious teacher, his followers were so sad after he died that they sort of got worked up, they gathered together, and they came to the conclusion that either Jesus' teaching would be really solidified if they claim that he raised from the dead, or some suggest 
that they had a hallucination. Maybe it was a joint hallucination. Maybe they were in the same room when it happened, but they all thought they saw Jesus. They very sincerely thought they saw Jesus, but they didn't, in fact, of course, see Jesus because he was not raised from the dead. Now, the problem with this argument against Jesus's resurrection, as any serious scholar will acknowledge, is that the disciples who followed Jesus don't show signs of a conspiracy or hallucination because all of the disciples, all 12 apostles, will commit to this shared message that they have seen the risen Jesus, that they have actually touched the risen Jesus, and they will hold on to this belief, some of them for 30, for 40 years, until each one of them will die, most of whom will be tortured to death to recant their beliefs, and none of them will. Any serious scholar struggles with the fact that these disciples don't give us any sign of someone who would be hallucinating or making this up. So as we're going to look at Mary's story here, where Mary is going to claim she saw Jesus. I mean, we really have to wrestle with this question. Do we trust Mary's claim? Do, do we trust these apostles' claim? Because if it's true, what they're saying would change everything. But if it's not, then surely these followers of Jesus were liars, concocted the greatest conspiracy the world has ever known, and were total frauds. That's a question you're going to have to wrestle with. The second question is, where was the body? I, I'm kind of fascinated by this question. It's interesting that immediately after Jesus' resurrection, the authorities are going to get really worked up. The Jewish authorities did not want Jesus to be resurrected. They had every reason and interest to find Jesus's body or to demonstrate where Jesus was. The Roman authorities had no interest in a resurrected Jesus. They had every reason to find the body, to discover where Jesus was. But the problem for any skeptic of Christianity is this question, why did no one historically at any point claim to see the body of Jesus dead and buried in the ground. Where was the body? Now, some arguments against Christianity have pushed back and said, maybe, again, if the disciples are not to be trusted, maybe this was the greatest conspiracy ever. The disciples stole and hid the body, and somehow no word ever came out that this is what the disciples did. I find that highly unlikely. Some suggest that maybe... Grave robbers came in here. We just heard Mary go to the tomb, be distraught. Someone has taken the body. Uh, this, again, is kind of a struggle, though, because if grave robbers did steal the body, then it seems difficult why the Jewish and Roman leaders wouldn't find where this body had been taken, right? Surely someone would talk. Someone would want to be paid for the information that they had. So Bart Ehrman, who I mentioned earlier, who again is a very scholarly, respected man, a, a deep and passionate skeptic of Christianity. Bart Ehrman's best conclusion I just read recently was at first that he thought the disciples had merely hallucinated. He thought there maybe was some sort of drug involved. The disciples hallucinated, believed sincerely that Jesus was resurrected. That was, the, that was the only way he could explain the data as a scholar that he had in front of him. But more recently, Bart Ehrman's best suggestion is that he thinks perhaps, perhaps the Roman soldiers 
took Jesus down from the cross, sort of inadvertently when no one was really there, no one was looking, and as sometimes was the case after crucifixions, instead of burying the body of Jesus, the soldiers fed Jesus's body, left it to the side, and, and allowed the dogs to eat it, which is, again, something that would happen, perhaps, in the Roman world. But for Bart Ehrman, this is, this is the best that he's got. I mean, this is what he thinks has to be the only historical explanation when you look at the data. Jesus' body had to be devoured by dogs and thus all the confusion and chaos and pandemonium a few days later when the disciples are claiming that he was raised from the dead couldn't be verified either way because his body was gone. The reason why I go through all of this detail with you is that I'm not suggesting this is an easy question to solve. Scholars will continue to debate, continue to offer hypotheses. But if you slow down and look at this question historically, from an evidence standpoint, carefully, what you're struck by is that there's a strong, strong case to be made that Jesus of Nazareth not only lived, not only taught, but claimed to be the Son of God, was crucified by the Roman Empire, and then on the third day, as he said, was raised from the dead by God to prove his claim that he was in fact God himself and that death now was defeated. I realize why this claim is difficult to accept. If it's true that Jesus of Nazareth actually was raised from the dead, that Jesus of Nazareth actually is God, well then you can't simply call him a nice moral teacher. You must accept him either as a liar or as your savior and Lord. I mean, this truly has implications for every facet of your life. And so this Easter, it's a great opportunity for me to pause as Mary runs to the tomb, as each of us in our own way are running to the tomb this Sunday. And I just want to ask, have you answered the question, was Jesus raised from the dead? And have you wrestled with what that might mean for you? In order to help you with this question, I want to show you what this question meant for Mary. So let's keep going with Mary's story. As we turn back to John 20, we find that Mary runs to the tomb with Peter and John. Peter uh, sort of looks, sees that the tomb is empty. He leaves. John enters the tomb. He also sees it as empty. He leaves. But then we find in verse 11, this really sad scene tells us, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Mary is standing outside the tomb, and as she's crying, you really have to pause and ask yourself, why is Mary so distraught? Jesus has already died, right? Surely there was no new information here. What is it about Jesus and his death and now his absence that would make Mary so distraught? Uh, there's not much information that we have about Mary, but we do have a little bit. Uh, see, the thing you need to know about Mary is that Mary had an old life. She had a past life. She had rather a shameful and embarrassing past. The only detail we have about Mary comes from Luke chapter eight, verse two, where Luke is telling us about these women 
who would become benefactors to Jesus' ministry, literally who would fund Jesus as he was going along doing his ministry in Galilee. And he'll mention some of these women had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, and Mary, called Magdalene, had seven demons come out of her. Now, if you pause and think about this, seven is a lot of demons. In fact, most commentators would suggest to you that Luke mentioned seven, perhaps because there were literally seven, or perhaps because seven represented a lot of demons. Uh, there probably was a sense in which it was very clear to everyone that something was not right with Mary. In the ancient world, if someone was possessed by demons, often it could look like bodily seizures, almost like epilepsy today. Uh, it sometimes could look like manic states in episodes, so almost like a bipolar disorder of extreme swings of emotion and bizarre, off-kilter behavior. Some from the church tradition have read the previous chapter of Luke, Luke 7, where Luke mentions this unnamed woman who were said was known as a great sinner. And for that reason, the church has sometimes associated Mary Magdalene to either have been a prostitute or to be this woman who was, in fact, the unnamed great sinner. And it makes sense that if she was possessed by seven demons, that there likely was some deep and uncontrollable behaviors in Mary's past that would have been widely known and that would have been shameful for Mary. I mean, no one wants to be possessed by demons. No one enjoys the experience of being out of control in their life. And yet Mary, living with these seven demons, surprisingly, we're told, was still seemingly wealthy enough that she could become a benefactor of Jesus. Some, in fact, think that Mary was rather a successful businesswoman who is known to have this sort of sordid or seedy past. And then Mary met Jesus. And when Mary met Jesus, Jesus cast these seven demons out of her and Mary's life was changed. Mary went from her old life in which she was known for this erratic behavior, for this demonic possession, where her identity was rooted in all of her wickedness and misdeeds and any other thing she was known for. And Mary now became someone who was a follower of Jesus. In fact, she was so committed to following Jesus that she would support his ministry. She would follow him to the cross. She would come running to his tomb simply to see his body. This is why Mary cried, because Mary had an old life, and she thought that maybe, just maybe, because she had encountered Jesus, there was a new life opening up for her. But when Jesus died, and when his body was taken, she just saw all of those dreams crumbling, and she wept. As I consider Mary's tears this Easter, I'm struck by how deeply each of us are longing for a new life. Have you ever noticed that? There's actually this theme that occurs over and over again in our movies, where we're, it seems like we're always just hoping that someone is going to appear 
and change everything, either offer us new opportunities, new powers, new abilities. I think of stories like Cinderella, where the prince appears and changes everything. I, I think of one of my favorite childhood movies, the Spider-Man series, Spider-Man movies today, where Peter Parker is just this ordinary teenager, but he's bit by a radioactive spider, and now he has all kinds of new opportunities and powers and ability and responsibility that he's never had before. One of my favorite movies that captures this longing for a new life was actually introduced to me by my father-in-law, Gary Irvine. And it's called The Family Man, it has Nicolas Cage in it, and it's kind of loosely based on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But in it, Nicolas Cage plays this wealthy, successful businessman who's living at the top penthouse of an apartment. And he has everything. He has cars, he has the fancy house, he has a girlfriend, and yet as you get a glimpse into his life, he is miserable. He's miserable. And yet, one random night near Christmas, I think, if I remember this right, he finds himself interacting with this messenger, who the movie kind of suggests might be an angel. And as this angel interacts with him, he tells him that everything's going to change when he wakes up. And sure enough, Nicolas Cage wakes up to find himself in not the fancy penthouse apartment that he had worked so hard to be successful in, but instead to find himself in an ordinary home with his childhood sweetheart, with their children running around them, with all of the ordinary mundane tasks that come with keeping a very ordinary existence. And yet as Nicolas Cage is living this brand new life that has just been given to him, he begins to fall in love with it. He begins to see how much he's been missing that's here for him as a family man. Right? And then as the movie goes on, of course, as the movie comes to a close, Nicolas Cage finds himself back in his old life, as if it was all a dream. And he has this choice he has to make. Will he continue living his old life, or will he risk everything to chase his childhood sweetheart and to start this family that he had always been longing for and never knew he wanted? This is a powerful gospel story, and I think it mirrors Mary's own longing. The cost of leaving an old life behind, the risk involved, the tears of sacrifice as she hopes against hope that this thing she's tasted might still be available to her. And for that reason, this is what I love about Mary. If you turn and look at this passage again with me, we find a couple of interesting details. We're told that as she wept, this is now verse 11, she will bend down to look into the tomb. A couple commentators note that Peter doesn't even look in the tomb. John, we're told, does look into the tomb, but Mary is going to stoop and enter in. It's like she can't help herself. She needs to investigate further. I love this persistence of Mary. I love what it tells us about this new life. If we're going to have a new life in Jesus, we're going to have to look for it. We're going to have to investigate further, lean in and explore this empty tomb. When she enters in, we're told that she sees two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? Isn't that a great question? Same question we asked of Mary. She tells them, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, 
she turns around and sees Jesus standing there, even though she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, I think this is a really fascinating point that John is making for our own pursuit of new life. Sometimes we find ourselves like Mary looking in all the wrong places. Don't we? Are we tempted? We're trying to leave this old life behind. We're, we're sort of looking, we're exploring for Jesus. I love that Mary gets it wrong at first. She has to engage with these messengers. She's literally looking in this empty tomb and the body's not there. As she turns around, she sees a man, but she's so distracted by her own grief. She doesn't realize that it's Jesus. So continue in this passage with me. Verse 15. Jesus is going to ask her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? I think this just highlights for us the question we each have to ask. Who are we looking for in a new life? If we have this longing within us for some new opportunity to come knocking, who is the real desire that we should be searching for in our pursuit of new life? Now, here's one of the great Bible moments. Uh, in fact, I would argue this is one of the great cinematic moments in all of Scripture. John is going to give us just a little wink and a nod here. And yet it's going to echo across the whole story of the Bible. John is going to tell us that Mary, thinking he, Jesus, was a gardener, said, Sir, if you've carried away... Tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. I love that John, just in the smallest detail, wants to get us to think. Mary's standing outside of an empty tomb, probably in a garden-like setting, and she sees a man whom she thinks is the gardener. She mistakes him for the gardener. John, most... Bible scholars would argue, is actually pointing us all the way back to the first garden where everything fell apart. And what John is trying to tell us is that in this very moment, even though Mary doesn't realize it, God has come as the gardener to put everything back together again. It's not a beautiful thought where Eve fell in temptation and distraction. Mary is invited to be asked, who are you looking for? And she responds, I'm looking for my Lord. This is Eden beginning to be restored. This is the gardener who's come to put the garden in order again. I, I love that Christianity, as it has reflected on the resurrection of Jesus, actually loves to talk about gardens and gardening. In fact, we just read a passage earlier this week as a church where Jesus tells us, unless your life goes into the ground like a seed and dies, no new life can ever come. But if you sit with this picture, it's almost like in the resurrection of Jesus, when we meet the resurrected Jesus, we're being invited to place our life into the ground. And God then begins to do this new work within us. In fact, the Holy Spirit is like the soil that surrounds us, that begins to nourish us, to give us the nutrients we need for this new life to grow. The Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, comes to encourage us, to comfort us, to convict us, to guide us. 
if the Holy Spirit is like the soil, then Jesus is like the gardener himself. Jesus is slowly going to nurture us. He's going to watch over us. He's going to water us as we grow up. He'll guide us with the trellis of his hand. He will trim us back when we begin to grow in weird, strange directions. He will remove the weeded soil around us. This is the work Jesus is doing in the new life of the resurrection. And God the Father then is like the sun that is shining down on us. It's like the warm, reassuring presence of a father looking over his children. John, who wrote this gospel, will later say in one of his epistles, Do you not know we are beloved children of God? That is what we are in Jesus Christ. So when it comes to the resurrection, is you've got this gardening work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God working to grow new life in you, Christianity also will describe the resurrection to be like a new power, almost like a new generator, or in our modern words, a new battery. There's nothing more frustrating than finding ourselves running off of a power source that will die. One of my least favorite things about owning a smartphone is the way in which your smartphone slowly diminishes till it gets to this point where it can barely keep a charge, where you look and realize, I'm not going to have enough battery life to get through this day. And yet what the Bible teaches is that our old lives the old life before Jesus, the old life before resurrection is running off of a power source that is not going to make it past your death. In fact, all of us in our old lives, we are told, will end in futility and death. And I feel it when I attempt to live off of this battery supply. The old life is simply interested in itself. And so the only power I have is the power I have from within, attempting to conjure up my best efforts and energy to either please God or please my wife or please my friends or please my job. And I always find that I fall short. And I always find myself running out of steam when it comes to this old power supply. But in Jesus, in his resurrection, we are now given a new power. It is the very life of God himself. And in this life, much like Father, Son, and Spirit work together in the image of a garden, here in this new power supply, we find the love of God filling us in ways that we never could be filled before. The love of God compelling us to sacrifice, to serve, to offer ourselves, giving us strength and courage and conviction that we never would have had before. This new life powers us all the way to our own deaths where we discover that death is not actually the end. This is what the resurrection of Jesus is all about. So for Mary, Mary is going to hear Jesus simply say her name. This is in verse 16. Jesus is going to say to her, Mary. She turned and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is what Jesus wants to offer you and wants to offer me. He knows your very name. Love it in Mary's name. 
Mary knows that Jesus holds and knows more intimately than anyone else everything her old life consisted of. All of the mistakes she made, all of the possession from demonic forces that terrorized her existence, all of the lonely nights and fruitless chases that she had been on. And yet with her name, Jesus tells her that he knows now who she is in him. She is known by him. And this new life that's waiting for her is just opening up. No wonder she responds, my Lord, my Lord, my teacher, the one who knows me, who now is going to guide me into the new life that you're offering me. There's this really great quote by C.S. Lewis on this transfer that occurs in the resurrection from old life to new life. C.S. Lewis says this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Think this is what I want you to walk away with this morning, this Easter Sunday, the very morning some 2,000 years ago, that Mary, grappling with the hopelessness of her old life, went to look for Jesus. She investigated the tomb, and what she discovered was that her Lord was there to speak her name and beckon her into the new life that was waiting for her. If I leave you with anything this morning, it's this. Do you want the new life that Jesus has to offer? Do you want new life? Are you looking for new life? If so, it will cost you everything. In fact, like the seed that goes into the ground, like the end of your very ambitions, like the emptying of your very self, you will have to let go of everything. But you will find in the new life of Jesus a new power, a new source, a new freedom that you never could have imagined before. So this is the invitation. Will you go looking for Jesus this Easter? Will you seek him out? We're going to be wrestling these next couple weeks with other resurrection encounters. I think there's a lot of questions still to be asked. And again, if you're wrestling with Christianity, if you have questions, Easter is the perfect opportunity for you to explore who Jesus is. Did he really rise from the dead? But I want to encourage you, if you go looking for Jesus, You may find that it costs you everything, but Jesus will find you and will offer you everything in return. So my friends, may I close us in prayer and offer a wonderful blessing over you on this day as we celebrate that Jesus is not dead, but Jesus is alive. He is risen. Heavenly Father, come now to us and meet us this Easter. 
Lord, find us as we look for you in all the wrong places. Find us as we explore and investigate with our questions, with our searching. Lord, find us with our names on your lips. May even this Sunday you speak to us with the knowledge of someone who knows all that our old life contained, but with the invitation for us to receive all of the new life you have to offer. And Lord, may you, the true gardener, begin to grow in each of us this new life that we can have in you. I pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessings, friends.